Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. to Talking Tudors episode 145. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in January including Cara, Tiffany, Laura, Susan, Tara, Kirst and Ellie. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. February's prize is a copy of the Palgrave Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Kavita Mudan-Finn. A huge thank you to Dr. Schutte for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Kate McCaffrey about Anne Boleyn's Books of Hours. Get in touch if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, notebooks, and apparel. New items will be added over time. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Linda Porter back to the show to talk about Mary, Queen of Scots. Linda was born in Exeter, brought up in Kent, and is a graduate of the University of York, from which she holds a BA and a Doctorate of Philosophy and History. In a varied career, Linda has lived in Paris and New York, worked as a university lecturer, and spent over 20 years in the corporate world. She's written five books, all published to critical acclaim. The latest, Mistress's Sex and Scandal at the Court of Charles II, came out in April 2020. Linda's specialisation is the 16th to 18th centuries, with particular emphasis on the Tudors, the Stuarts and the French Revolution. She's a regular reviewer for the Literary Review and BBC History magazine and has spoken at many literary festivals. Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
welcome back to Talking Tudors, Linda. How are you? I'm okay, thank you, Natalie. It's extremely grey here in England and has been for some days now. After a quite sunny part of early January, so it's a bit of a shock to the system, but at least the days are getting a bit longer. So we're doing all right. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Now, it has been a little while since you've been on the show. So would you mind just introducing yourself again to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, I'm, I was born in the West Country of England in Devon. Uh, I've lived in Paris and New York, but for the last, well, more than 30 years now, I've been back in the UK. I was brought up in southeast England, in in Kent, which is where I now live. I'm married. I've got uh, a daughter and two granddaughters. Um, They live in Switzerland. So for two years during the height of COVID and lockdown, we didn't see them. Uh, We managed to go there last September, which was a great feat of um, dealing with all of the uh, uh, things you have to upload, download and print out. Um, But we made it and we're very happy about that. At the moment, I'm in the middle. I I guess I am actually right in the middle almost of of writing a book on Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's elder sister, uh, which rather grew out of of my third book, Crown of Thistles, which was about the wider rivalry between the Tudors and the Stuarts. And it is very interesting, but it's also quite, it's more challenging, I think it's fair to say, than I thought it would be when I started it. But it will be finished by this time next year, I hope, because that is the deadline, very literally almost now. So uh, that's what I'm working on at the moment. That sounds wonderful. I can't wait for that because I I feel like, yeah, I don't really hear too much about her. So that I think is going to be fantastic. And I'll have to lure you back onto the podcast. Oh, don't don't worry. I'll be very happy to come on. I mean, what you said there is one of the reasons that I was writing about it. There have been a number of sort of short biographies of her, but um, uh, really it it is a, a situation both in Scotland, England and and in wider Europe that that she lived through that is very, very interesting. Her life is extremely dramatic. So uh, I think she does make a a good topic, but she's not an easy woman um, to deal with because at various times of her life, there is much more information than others. I mean, as you know, that's true of of any historical figure, but it's particularly challenging to deal with in her case, I think. So I hope I'm getting there at any rate. Well, thank you for doing all the hard work for us. And then we just enjoy (laughs) the book. (laughs) Now, we are going to be talking about Mary, Queen of Scots today. And I know that you're quite passionate about reassessing and reevaluating her reputation. But so before we jump into that, for the benefit of people that maybe don't know very much about her, can you just tell us a little bit about Mary, Queen of Scots? Who was she? Mary, Queen of Scots was the uh, first Queen Regnant in the British Isles, actually. Uh, I think a a fact that is quite often overlooked. She was born just six days before the death of her father in December 1542 and came to the throne, obviously, as a child, as had every other Stuart monarch before her, going back to the early 15th century. It's quite an extraordinary story in itself. But she was the youngest. (laughs) The others had ranged in age from about six to 14 and, and all points in between. But at six days, she was the youngest. Her father was James V of Scotland, who was Margaret Tudor's son. Uh, So Mary, Queen of Scots, is Margaret Tudor's granddaughter. And her mother was Mary of Guise, James V's second wife, who was a a French noblewoman from a a, a prominent northeastern France family who were extraordinarily ambitious. And for both uh, of them, James and Mary, it was a second marriage. His first wife, Madeleine of France, the daughter of Francis I, had died within six weeks of returning to Scotland, which doesn't have very much to do with the Scottish climate, but more to do with the fact that she actually had tuberculosis and had been ill for some time. 
And Mary Guise herself had been married and widowed and had a son whom she had to leave behind in the care of her, her mother, which, of course, was not uncommon with women who made second marriages into the aristocracy or noble families or royal families in those days. It was, uh, I think, a, a, a difficult thing and on a personal level, more of a wrench than many people nowadays think of. You know, they see these things in family trees, but don't necessarily consider the personal heartbreak that may lie behind it. So that's who Mary is. And she came to the throne, uh, as I said, as a baby, as a small child living in Scotland. Um, she lived mostly in Stirling Castle, which was very heavily fortified. First few years of her life were characterised by warfare between England and Scotland uh, in what are, are rather romantically known as the rough wooings, because Henry VIII hit upon the scheme that his, his young son, Edward VI, should be married to the infant Mary, uh, and thus unite the two crowns and ultimately the two kingdoms. The Scots, having suffered numerous defeats in battle at uh, English hands and, and generally, not, well, there were Scottish nobles who were pro-English, but they were generally a minority. The, the Scots didn't want Mary married to England and certainly her mother, Mary of Guise, didn't want that at all. And finally, as these English raids and depredations increased in the late 15th 40s, a decision was taken to send Mary to France to be brought up in the French court by Henry II of France and his wife, Catherine de Medici, who had a substantial family of their own. So Mary left France in uh, left Scotland, sorry, in 1548 to, to go to France and stayed there until 1561 when she came back to Scotland. In between, she had married the Dauphin, the eldest son of, of Henry and Catherine, Francois, who, who was sort of physically everything that Mary was not. Mary was tall and robust and good looking and healthy. And poor little Francois was really <laughs> almost like the runt of the litter, although the eldest child of Catherine and, and Henri II. And uh, he was delicate and, and unwell. I, I think he was probably, um, you know, on a personal level, a, a pleasant enough and bright enough young man. Um, he was about a year younger than Mary. So he was 14 and she was 15 when they were married in Notre Dame. His father, Henry II, died in, in a bizarre jousting accident in 1559. And so Francis and Mary became king of and queen of France, as well as Mary still being queen of Scotland. Uh, the French saw this as an opportunity essentially to move Scotland finally uh, completely under French control. But any plans they might have had on that front were firstly made more difficult by the opposition of a growing number of Protestant lords in, in Scotland to being under the control of the French. You have to remember that the Reformation came late to Scotland uh, and it wasn't really until the latter years of the regency of Mary, Queen of Scots' mother, Mary of Guise, that there was an open move to try and establish Protestantism as the state religion of Scotland. Uh, and in fact, in the year 1560, Mary, Queen of Scots, suffered two tremendous personal losses. Her husband died towards the end of the year of a very severe ear infection, which presumably led to sepsis. But anyhow, he wasn't ill for very long and he died. And her mother had died about six months before that. So essentially, she needed at that point to return to Scotland. There wasn't much of a role for a childless queen mother in in France. If, if 
Mary and Francis had had children, I think her position would have been very different. By this time, she appears to have had a rather uneasy relationship with Catherine de' Medici. And um, the, the, the young king of France, Charles IX, was only, I mean, he was under 10 years old. And so his mother was going to need to, to keep control of him with the support of others for, for a very long time. And so Mary was essentially surplus to requirements and an, and an expense and drain on the French crown and exchequer. And her half-brother, James, Earl of Murray, came to France and essentially said, you've got to come back. Here are the things you, you need to know and will need to be aware of. Mary was, of course, brought up as a Catholic. She could, um, despite the fact that a, a lot of people have assumed she knew nothing about Scotland, this isn't true. She had kept abreast of what was happening there. She'd been regularly briefed and she had kept up kept up her Scots, although by this time French was her, her first language. Uh, and so in 1561, in the August of that year, she's often been depicted, you, you know, I am, I'm recording a romantic picture of, of Mary in a boat staring over her shoulder, you know, going adieu France when she left. This is all great stuff if you like historical novels. But I think she realised that it was both a question of her duty and having little choice to return to the land of her birth. And so she did. And thereafter, of course, she faced all kinds of problems. But that is essentially who she was. She ruled in Scotland between 1561 and 1567 per on her personal rule. And despite a lot of uh, difficulties and opposition, both religious um, from different factions amongst her advisors, she had actually done fairly well. She'd called parliaments, she'd seen off rebellions. She'd established an uneasy relationship with Elizabeth I down in England. Uh, and it wasn't really until later on in her reign, um, particularly after her second marriage to uh, Lord Darnley, who was also a grandson of, of Margaret Tudor, but through Margaret's second marriage, it wasn't until that marriage went very wrong that things began to sort of overwhelm Mary. And, and eventually she, after Darnley's murder, she seems to have suffered a nervous breakdown. And she'd suffered from various illnesses all her life, incidentally, although she seemed a robust bride at 15. She, she was not a very well woman in many respects. She seems to have suffered from depression and other illnesses. And uh, when she was coerced into marriage with James Heber, the Earl of Bothwell, eventually the, the, the Scottish lords rose against her. She was imprisoned on Loch Leven and forced to abdicate and, and then escaped and lost one last battle just outside Glasgow and made uh, the decision which is pro was probably the most fateful of any of the difficult decisions she'd had to make in her life, which was to, to flee across the water to, to England, where, of course, she'd expected at least reasonable treatment and, if not that, considerable support to regain her throne from her cousin. But as we all know, she didn't find that, and um, was eventually embroiled in plots to uh, dethrone Elizabeth and have her assassinated. In fact, Mary was drawn more and more and more into a kind of web that Mary's spymaster Walsingham weaved around her. And eventually she was executed at Fotheringay on February the 8th, 1587. And the, uh, the sort of legend of a martyred queen grew up, I, I think, from about that point in time. I mean, we all know the story that, that Elizabeth claimed to have signed the warrant accidentally and had second thoughts almost immediately, which she probably did almost immediately afterwards, but Lord Burley made sure that the warrant was sent to Fotheringay and acted upon. But I mean, there were serious implications for Elizabeth in executing an anointed monarch in many respects, although it might have removed an immediate problem 
it didn't really solve a number of the underlying difficulties of the latter part of the Elizabethan reign. But of course, Mary's legend is this ill-advised woman with poor judgment and a romantic figure, you know, the antithesis of, of a strong-minded English queen who knew what she was doing. This began, this legend, I think quite soon after Mary's uh, Mary's death. So that, that is her life in a nutshell. There's a lot more to it, of course. I have to say that was a fantastic summary, quite an extraordinary life. And I find it really interesting that you noted that she spent six years or so, you know, her personal rule. And we rarely hear about this period. You know, we generally hear about her captivity and, and other things. So that I find really fascinating. And is this why, or I should ask you, why do you think it's time that we reassessed Mary's reputation? Well, I, I think a number of historical reputations, particularly women rulers, the other Mary, Mary the First, is a is a case in point, are undergoing revision and probably have been for some time. I, I think it's important that some of the new ideas and new ways of looking at people do eventually filter out into the general public, because as you know, Natalie. Natalie, public perceptions of historical figures, once established, can take many, many years, if not centuries in some cases, to, to be on the agenda, as it were, for, for, for reassessment. But I, I think, I, I mean, I'm still irritated when I see things that, that sort of say, oh, well, the only way we should be interested in Mary, Queen of Scots, is, is these appalling men in her life. And that this makes her a kind of soap opera figure, almost. Whereas, you know, gutsy Elizabeth never married anyone. Um, she might well have married Robert Dudley, of course, had he not, shall I put it, had the misfortune to have his wife fall down a set of steps and break her neck. Uh, certainly he was a no more reputable or, or reasonable choice for marriage than any of the men Mary eventually married, but of course Elizabeth didn't marry him. Uh, and I think Mary is also tied very much to the Gloriana image of Elizabeth, which is being reassessed at the moment. But again, it takes a very long time. I think if I were to walk out of my front door and stop someone on the street, they would tell me that Elizabeth I was the greatest monarch this country has ever had, which is certainly a debatable point of view. And this view is still being pushed by by quite a number of historians, of course. And I think one of the things that bothers me most about Mary, because, you know, we are a long way into the feminist era now, in fact, some people might say we've, alas, come back out of it. Uh, many of those who've been most critical of Mary, Queen of Scots, have been women and women historians. And I find this disturbing, actually. I mean, it is the kind of thing you might expect from a, um, a perhaps a rather dyed-in-the-wool male historian, a Victorian or someone like that. But it isn't something you expect from female historians in the, in the 21st century. I mean, I'm not suggesting that they have to rush out and announce that Mary, Queen of Scots, was the greatest female ruler of the 16th century. That's quite clearly nonsense. But it, it's, it's the concentration on the negative side of her life and reign, rather than looking for the positives. Historical novels, Hollywood, though the latest film on Mary, Queen of Scots, does present a rather more balanced view of her than, than Mary, many did in the past. But I, I somehow, as, as, a, as a woman, I find this quite distasteful. And I, I think it's also lazy history. 
to be truthful. It isn't really looking at particularly what the situation Mary faced in Scotland truly was and how anyone, male or female, in fact, could have dealt with it. And this this view of Mary as, as some sort of slightly sad, silly ninny who um, got herself in a mess because she would keep falling in love with the wrong men is just nonsense. If, if I can take a bit of time out now to, to look yes, at of course. she actually married. I mean, she had no choice to marry Francis II of France, and she'd known him since they were children, and they do seem to have been genuinely fond of one another. And it isn't a particularly stupid thing to agree to marry the heir to the French throne. <laughs> in fact, some people might think it was rather a good idea, uh, if in nothing else in terms of jewellery and clothes and palaces and things like that, as, as well as the influence and power that might come with it. So I, I think we can put him to one side as a, as a choice of husband. Much of the criticism of Mary revolves around her second and third husbands. Darnley is an interesting case because it's often represented that, you know, because he was young, tall and handsome, Mary thought, hmm, you know, I fancy you. It would appear that, in fact, her reasons for marrying him were much more pragmatic than that. For, for a start, Darnley had a claim to the thrones of both England and Scotland, as did Mary. I think the other thing that people lose track of in all of this is that Mary firmly believed, and at least from a legal perspective, her, her stance was fairly unfairly strong, that she was Elizabeth's heir. You know, Elizabeth had no children. There was no taint of illegitimacy anywhere in Mary's past, whereas uh, Elizabeth had been declared illegitimate by her father, of course, when Anne Boleyn was executed, although that had been glossed over when she was returned to the succession in 1544. She wasn't, neither she nor Mary, her sister, were, were re-legitimised, as it were. So in, in law and in descent, Mary had a very strong claim to the throne. And so to marry someone else who has a similar descent and can therefore bolster your claim it is actually dynastically a very sensible thing to do. There wasn't a lot of other choice, either in England, Scotland or uh, uh, the rest of Europe. Catherine de Medici's other sons were all far too young. They were just literally little boys. Um, there was Don Carlos, uh, the son of Philip II of Spain, but he was mentally unstable uh, and uh, not therefore a terribly attractive prospect either. So Darnley, um, Elizabeth rather unwisely allowed to travel north, seemed to present a, a reasonable option. I, Mary was not to know that he was a spoiled brat and weakling and, and, and a vicious young man as well. I and mean, she did discover this quite quickly. By that time, there was little that she could do about it. They did, of course, have a son, the future James VI and I. But by the 1566-1567 time, the, the marriage was essentially over. Most of the nobles hated Darnley, who had hoped that he would be king of Scotland. You know, he, he expected to, to have a, a similar role as Mary, and he wasn't given this. Mary soon realised it wouldn't be a good idea. He could have settled into a role almost like a, a king mother, if you know what I mean, <laughs> king yeah. father, I suppose. You know, queen mothers had a considerable power and influence. And I think if Darnley had settled for a role in which he essentially brought up his son... God help James VI if he had. The poor boy didn't have a great upbringing anyhow. He might have been able to maintain a much more influential role in Scotland, but he wasn't either able or willing to settle for that. And there was talk of divorce, uh, of, of course, which would have been difficult since both were Catholic, though it 
it could have been done. But of course, all of this came to a sudden and dramatic end when um, Darnley, having returned from Glasgow to, to Edinburgh, ostensibly for a rapprochement with his wife, died in the explosion at Kirker Fields, um, which was also in February. So both of these anniversaries are coming up, as is the murder of David Rizzio, Mary's secretary, in whose murder Darnley was implicated. In fact, he was one of the people who led the conspirators up into Mary's dining room in Holyrood House. And, and this was the most, at that stage, the most difficult thing that had happened to Mary. She had good advice. I mean, she, she had some very sound advisors. She had William Maitland of Levington. She had her brother, who with whom she had an uneasy relationship. James Stewart had always, I think, hoped that he would rule, essentially, although he was illegitimate. He was much older than Mary. And he was a Protestant. But eventually, you know, there were too many different parties, if you like, or factions at play. And uh, the murder of Darnley, uh, which is still not, you know, being fully explained even to this day, seems to have thrown Mary into a complete spin. How much she knew about it in advance, I don't think we will ever know. People are still arguing about this, as you know. Given her reaction, it seems to me unlikely that she realised he was going to be murdered, even if perhaps she'd heard whisperings, well, she had heard whisperings about getting rid of him because she'd been party to discussions about divorcing him and sending him into Europe. His death actually led to the end of her reign. And in the in the sort of power vacuum which followed it, during which Mary was very unwell, a number of the lords met under the aegis of, of the Earl of Bothwell. And rather than incredibly signed a bond which permitted Bothwell to offer himself to Mary as a husband because all of these men felt that women couldn't really rule. They were, in terms of descent in in this case, and Elizabeth's a kind of necessary evil because there wasn't a male, but it was felt that in a patriarchal society that women were unfit to hold office, that they were too subject to sort of passions and female hormones. I mean, I'm giving it a modern slant, but, yes, but yeah. you know what I mean. Uh, and that, that despite the fact that the 16th century saw numerous women in Europe in, in positions of power, very few had direct power. And the Habsburgs had aunts and sisters scattered throughout Europe, essentially governing the entire continent. But any of these women, um, particularly if you think of Mary of Guise, Mary the Queen of Scots' mother, and Mary of Hungary, who was the aunt of Philip II, they both said, you know, we are, essentially, we are put in an impossible position. We have to govern, but we don't ultimately have the authority. And that reservation was applied to Queen Regnants as well by the the men around them. So Bothwell's plan, though perhaps rather daring, oddly enough, seems to have met with approval. He was a Protestant lord who had been notably loyal to the crown and served down in the borders in what was an extremely lawless part of Scotland and had been wounded, you know, trying to keep law and order there. So he was a he was someone who had a good, if you like, a good record in public service at that time. He was also a murderous thug. <laughs> But then quite a number of people in that sort of position and in that society were, if push came to shove. One of the great myths, which I think is still probably out there about Mary and Bothwell, is that she was madly in love with him. There is absolutely no evidence for this. When 
he took his petition to marry her to Mary, she refused him. And if this was posturing, I think we are we are overthinking it. But anyhow, as you probably know, he he kidnapped her when she was returning from seeing her son in Stirling and took her to his fortress at Dunbar, removed all of her servants so that she was essentially alone and appears to have coerced her into having sex with him. And as a result of that, and because she seems to have realised fairly soon after this that she was pregnant, she agreed to marry him. They were married for just a a few months in 1567. Uh, it was desperately unhappy. There were rumours that Mary had tried to kill herself. Uh, she's supposed to have said, we must make the best of it. Precisely why she continued with him, I think is only really explained by the idea that for, for a queen to be pregnant out of wedlock is, is something that, that as a, a monarch, she just couldn't face. So she, uh, she did stick with him. Eventually, because he had married Mary against her will, because a lot of those who had signed his bond were having second thoughts about him fairly quickly. Civil war essentially broke out. The lords rose against, they were defeated in battle in June 1567. Bothwell fled the field and went into exile in, the, in Scandinavia. He was eventually imprisoned in Denmark and died, having lost his wits, really, some, some years later. Mary, having been promised fair terms, surrendered to those who had opposed her and was promptly labelled a whore and dragged off the field and treated quite shamefully, actually, and in, imprisoned on Loch Leven, where she found herself under the not very gentle control of James Stewart, her brother's mother, who had always hoped to marry her father but hadn't done so. Uh, she did miscarry twins later in that summer. But as I said earlier, she managed eventually to escape. She was a woman who knew how to charm people, I think. Perhaps not the whole of the Scottish lords collectively, because I'm not quite sure what sort of witchcraft you would have needed to charm all of them. They were men very resistant to charm in, some res in many respects. But, you know, until that time, she had managed, despite John Knox, to tread a middle way between her lords, who were predominantly Protestant, the populace, who were predominantly Catholic still, not to impose her own religion on things too much, to, to have a group of reasonable advisors around her. But her situation was an extraordinarily difficult one. Uh, and I've often wondered how Elizabeth I would have done in such circumstances, because it's all very well to make speeches to troops at Tilbury, but if some man has kidnapped you and is essentially going to rape you, I don't really see how even Elizabeth I would have got out of that particular situation. But I think Mary's reputation has been tainted by a bit as Mary I of England was by Elizabethan propaganda, because, you know, as soon as Mary was in England being moved around various drafty castles in the Midlands and north of England, she never, of course, met Elizabeth, despite plays, films, Hollywood scripts and all that sort of thing. They never met. She couldn't really recover her position. The rising of the Northern Earls in 1569 to 70 in, in the north of England was part of an attempt to put her back on the throne by Catholic supporters in the north of England, but it didn't work. And as the years went by, her options became more and more limited. And I, I think her reputation, as you've you've hinted, falls between the ditzy romantic who keeps going after after the wrong men. And I hope I've put some of that 
to sleep yes. in what I said, and the uh, hapless victim of, of uh, Elizabeth I. Whereas in between is a, a charming, well-educated woman who wrote poetry and who's who's still being, on the one hand, dismissed as, as sort of everything Elizabeth I was not, and a sort of living example of how to mess things up. And this martyr from whose scarlet petticoats, when her head fell, her little dog crept out underneath. I mean, it is a hugely dramatic story, but the reality in Scotland while she ruled there was that, that the kingdom, though going through difficult times, was governable. It was really only Darnley's murder that, that triggered what seems like almost a domino effect that Mary had neither the physical or mental strengths really to deal with. Yeah, uh, Linda, it doesn't matter how many times I hear about the, you know, all the personal challenges that that Mary faced. I'm always shocked. I'm always completely shocked because it's quite extraordinary that she was able to go on, I think, and the resilience and the courage that she showed. And yes, we why don't we pay enough attention to that? I'm not sure. And as you say, how would Elizabeth have done with that series of, of traumas? Of course, Elizabeth had her difficulties as well. And I wanted to, maybe if you touch on a little bit more the challenges that women at this time faced, you've you've talked about this a little bit, but it was obviously extremely difficult for women to rule at this point. Well, it it was not just because of the innate prejudices of of society, but also if you look at, in fact, what happened to many queens consort, which is not irrelevant because, of course, the the expectation for a queen regnant was that she would marry and have children. I mean, she had to, to, to safeguard the succession. Otherwise, there were all sorts of questions about what might happen subsequently, which Elizabeth never answered in her reign, of course. But but inherent in this, in this is that there is the sheer physical difficulties that women faced. I mean, childbirth was a dangerous course. I and mean, some women sailed through it um, quite extraordinarily, producing child after child. The most notable example of that I think of actually in the 17th century is Charles II's mistress, Lady Castlemaine, who had numerous illegitimate children, seems to have been back on her feet and dancing within days of the birth. <laughs> but most women couldn't do that. And I mean, Mary actually survived a quite long, as far as I recall, and hard labour, but did recover subsequently after the birth of her son, James. It's a combination of the physical and the ingrained views of, of society. And if you recall, throughout the 1560s, and it even went on longer, there was a bit of a joke by then, much of the effort of Elizabeth's advisors was to try and find her a husband. You know, they went through archdukes, princes, you name them, they were all considered. And Elizabeth probably wisely didn't choose any of them. But Mary wasn't really conforming to a stereotype, Mary Queen of Scots, when she married, and neither was was Mary the First. This was just it wouldn't have occurred really to either of that they they wouldn't have a husband. But in both cases, they seem to have felt that it was good to have a husband and to try and have children, but that they wouldn't wouldn't relinquish the role the leading role of ruling as Queen Regnant. And so that, that is that is quite significant, I think. But, um, you know, basically with John Knox thundering away against the monstrous regiment of women, which was aimed at Mary of Guise and Mary I of England, and he, he was a firebrand, but he did have support both in England and Scotland. Uh, this is quite a lot to, to have to deal with. And whereas, of course, Elizabeth had the same religion by that time as the majority of her subjects, Mary did too, but in a, in, a, in a different sort of governmental context, because the Lords of the Congregation had established Protestantism as the major religion of Scotland only in the very late 1550s. Uh, so it, it was a, a country uncertain 
of its own situation as regards religion, as regards its as regards its ruler. But I think Mary's determination to try and rule there and not to let go of her claim to the English throne are two things that are often overlooked about her. I mean, I think the latter is often dismissed as, oh, well, you know, she would say that, wouldn't she? But it was her son who united the crown. So you might say that in the end, she won the battle. I mean, one of the interesting things at the moment, Natalie, is that there's been a major exhibition here in London on Elizabeth and Mary as cousins and, and and rival queens, which I haven't actually personally, I'm afraid, been able to go to because I've got a lot of mobility problems with my left foot at the moment, so I can't get into London. But I know various people have been and I've got the um, magnificent um, catalogue that goes with it. But there was recently a very perceptive review of it by the historian Joe Strong for Team Queens, which people can look up on Twitter or wherever if they want. And it is a very perceptive review because it says that at the end of the day, even if they didn't intend it, the emphasis is still on Elizabeth. Right. (laughs) Apparently, you know, as you go into one further area to to look at some of Mary's documents and things, all you can hear is a blasting version of Elizabeth's speech at Tilbury to the troops. (laughs) Uh, which I find interesting. Um, so I, I think she's made some quite crucial points about it. Sadly, well, because it is a brilliant exhibition, bringing all sorts of documents and things together. It won't travel up to Scotland, which is a shame, to say the least. And because of that and because of COVID, it hasn't attracted very much attention in Scotland. This is a, a sort of perpetuating theme, I think. But I, I do think that in terms of reputation, Mary, Queen of Scots, deserves better from women making snarky comments about, oh, you know, she she just had awful dialogue in men and she may have been charming and wrote poetry and played music but so what um there is much more to this woman than than that and her long exile in england is truly a thing of misery and progressive misery uh, as well so it, it, it is a very sad life but i think we need to get over the sort of misconceptions of dear old bothwell being you know mary's heart's desire and all that i mean i know this was in the film with vanessa redgrave and nigel davenport years ago and that probably affected many people. The current or most recent one, oh, Mary Queen of Scots, with I, I never know how to pronounce her name. It's I, something like I think it rhymes with inertia. I was trying to. Yeah, Ronan at least doesn't go down that route. You no, know, it, it doesn't, doesn't pre- present Bothwell as some sort of he-man savior that this woman hugely desired. Um, and it's got a wonderful turn by an almost unrecognizable David Tennant as as, as John Knox. Apart from the, the silly ending in which uh, Mary and Elizabeth meet in what looks like a laundry yes. <laughs> hanging sheets uh, and the fact that Mary goes from being sort of strong and successful to being weak and, and nervous almost literally within a few frames of the film I, I think it has quite a lot to recommend it as a, at least a more balanced slightly more balanced view at any rate yes I did enjoy it even just for the um, the incredible scenery that was beautiful mm. Linda so we've talked about some of those mis- conceptions that that are still perpetuated today, you know, the Bothwell one and a couple of others. Are there any others that you want to just, you know, put to bed right now? Well, I think the fact that Mary Queen of Scots failed is often held against her. Uh, I I mean, that was largely, I have to say, the result of a book by the the great late Scottish historian Jenny Wormold, who was no fan of Mary's and who who wrote Mary Queen of Scots' A Study in Failure. She did subsequently change the subtitle, and I can't ultimately remember what it was but it was a bit softened from that I mean I think it it 
it depends how you define failure and success. As Queen of Scotland, Mary had tried and, yes, not succeeded in in uniting a small, difficult-to-govern country that had had a much more prominent place in Europe than it it perhaps had by the mid-16th century. It's sort of apogee of that was under James IV, her her grandfather. But it, it all depends, doesn't it, on how you define failure. I can't make out a case for Mary being successful in Scotland, since she obviously wouldn't have fled into exile if she had been. I think I can make out a case for people looking more carefully at her rule, who she chose as advisers, how she took their advice and how she tried to summon Parliament. She also attended council meetings regularly. And again, she's been laughed at for this. Oh, well, she took in sewing and knitting. But but that was a quite clever ploy. While you're bent over your needlework, you can pay attention to everything that's going on around you. And afterwards, she would summon people that she had and I things that she had picked out to come and talk to her separately. So the, the, again, this idea that this is a sort of feeble, girly thing to do is, is complete rubbish and, and doesn't understand the way things worked in those days. But in terms of ultimate success, although Elizabeth refused to recognise Mary as her heir, it is Mary's son and Mary's line yes. that took over in England and eventually united the two kingdoms in 1707 under Queen Anne. Quite what will happen to them in the future is, is a good question at the moment. I just think it's time we stopped this romantic view of Mary and recognised the complexities of, of governing in Scotland. And Mary did have supporters there, both amongst the ordinary people. She was very good, as all the Stuarts were, about going out and about and travelling and meeting people. I think if Elizabeth had had to do, you know, about half of the, the sort of travelling, and I, as you know, Scotland in those days was not the easiest of countries to get around. Uh, I think, you know, it, Mary knew her own country, I'm sure, even after an absence, probably much better than Elizabeth geographically knew England at any rate. Then I think if you can consider the longer view of history, then Mary can't be viewed as as a failure. She had given birth to an heir who took the English throne eventually. I wonder, Linda, why you think that this, and just using your your words, the love struck ninny, why do you think this persists? And why do you think some historians continue kind of perpetuating that myth, especially women? I think it's mostly people who, women who are great admirers of Elizabeth. Uh, And as you probably know, there has been in the last 20 years or so, well, probably longer than that, uh, but amongst scholars, a much more Detached isn't quite the right word. There has been an interest in examining the Gloriana myth. You know, what was this reign really like? And that that is not to to suddenly change perceptions altogether. In many respects, in in literature and in exploration, on the wider sort of global scene, Elizabeth did establish England as as a significant power, though perhaps not as significant as some of her advisors would like to think, since there were huge empires in the East, which are, are often overlooked. I think, firstly, there is the treatment that Elizabeth meted out to Mary, which is not easy to explain away. You can understand it and you can justify it, but it, it is at the very least unpleasant and presented Elizabeth with a problem that just grew and grew over nearly two decades. Then I think you have the contrast in, in the sort of women they were. Mary's often represented as being beautiful. If you look at her portraits, I don't think you'd actually describe her as beautiful. She's a striking looking woman and certainly her, her height 
cetera apart. So there is this kind of personal rivalry between them. But in looking again at Elizabeth's reign, historians, notably John Guy, for example, have looked at the the latter part of Elizabeth's reign and and found, you know, come off it, this is not a golden age. It it is a time of growing religious dissent. The Catholics have been made second class, well, not even second class citizens, I suppose, a sort of subgroup, which lasted well into the 19th century. There's a, a persecution of Catholic priests and Jesuits, which is very nasty and often overlooked. And Jesse Childs, the historian, has written about this. There's growing economic difficulties, a more fractious parliament, certainly in the 1590s, and a feeling that, you know, uh, an age is coming to an end, but we don't know where it's going. Of course, most people in power did know that, that James VI in Scotland would succeed and that he had considerable experience of government by that time because he'd come to the throne as slightly older than Mary, but not very much. He had a wife and, and children. He had heirs already. Uh, so he was very much a king in waiting. And I think those latter years of Elizabeth's reign are, are very much that, you know, when is the old hag going to die? And this, yeah. this is not glorious, you know. Let's face it, it isn't glorious and and it it is no way perhaps to be remembered. It is the old Protestant nationalistic view of England that Elizabeth appears to exemplify, which is probably unfair to her, actually, as well, because it has put on her shoulders a number of things that she probably wasn't in, in fact. I'm quite why female historians, I think sometimes, Natalie, also feel that we have to make a stronger case, especially in the 16th and 17th centuries, for, for female rulers than you might have to make for a male ruler. I don't quite know why that is, but I do wish that this constant pitting of Elizabeth against Mary, Queen of Scots, and also against her sister, Mary I, could be finally subsumed into a more nuanced, balanced view of all three of them, in fact. And I suppose I rest my case at that point. Yeah, well, you've certainly given me a lot to reflect on and I, and I hope you've inspired our listeners to also maybe look at this story again, as you say, and hopefully see, you know, a more balanced view of these women. There's one more thing, Linda, that I wanted to ask you. Is there anything, in case people want to learn more about any of the things we've been discussing, do you have a suggestion for them at all, a takeaway that they might explore after our episode? Well, I think they could do worse than look at the film we were discussing, yeah, the yeah. Mary Queen of Scots film. Um, because it's an entertaining film, though you, you have to remember that it's it's a work of fiction. If you're also interested in that kind of thing, you can read Friedrich Schiller's play, Mary, Queen of Scots, which, again, you know, shows a number of things that didn't happen, but is, is sort of uh, interesting for the wider sphere. One thing I haven't really touched on is, and this is work that waits to be done, I think, on how Mary... Queen of Scots has been viewed outside the United Kingdom. And this might be one for Estelle Parank, actually, of course, who's written about Elizabeth I through Valois eyes. I think we could do Mary, Queen of Scots, you know, in in a similar, more international setting. Because it it would be interesting to see whether there are more individual judgments or whether a lot of these are still based on kind of centuries of of prejudice and one-sidedness coming out of England. I don't know the answer to that question. But but it is interesting sometimes because we do assume that our, in the English-speaking world, we assume that our views of these people are the only ones. And of course, they're not. (laughs) So uh, someone who might think about looking at that sort of thing would be good. What what else? Well, I think if you're ever visiting Scotland, you know, one hopes that that travel will become more free in, in coming years. I would suggest to people if they want to have just an inkling of the sense of 
terror that there must have been that night when Darnley and the Earl of Morton broke into Mary's private dining room in Holyrood House with the intent of murdering David Rizzio, is to visit Holyrood House and go into that little room because nothing brings home to you. I mean, they must have been a bit pressed for space anyhow because there was dining there with Mary, her, her, her half-sister, Lady Jean Gordon, Countess of Huntley, and her half-brother, Lord Robert Stewart, and various other people. I think there were about eight of them in all. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, to imagine what it was like to have men break in and one hold a pistol to your side when you're six months pregnant. And they were only saved from probably all being burned alive by the, by Mary's half-sister's quick-wittedness in picking up a candle that had been pushed over. Uh, it, it must have been absolutely terrifying. And although Rizzio wasn't murdered, actually in Mary's presence, he was dragged out and stabbed about 50 times on the staircase. I mean, you can still see all of this, all of these places, and it does bring home to you. Plus, which Holyrood is a wonderful palace and Edinburgh is a fantastic city. So if you have the opportunity, I would advise people to go. Yes, I'm going to add that to my list. I have, I have been, but for some reason, I didn't go to Holyrood. I went to lots of the other places, but not that well, one. Well, there so. are loads of, I mean, I, I haven't, for example, been to Edinburgh Castle for years and right. years. It's fantastic itself. It is, but, yeah. but Holyrood is well worth visiting. Well, thank you so much, Linda. Thank you for another, you know, illuminating and fascinating discussion. And please keep us up to date with your new book. And thank I you will. again. For, yeah, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Natalie. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <laughs> <laughs>